then it must be noted that the greatest opposition against God, against his gospel and our revival, the greatest opposition is not the forces of hell. No. The Lord is not worried or concerned about the devil. There was nothing more valuable than the covenant that God made with Abraham. And the new covenant that we have today has no equal. Demonic forces have never been strong enough to thwart the work of the kingdom. The greatest opposition does not come from without. It comes from within. The devil and all his power has nothing on the flesh. Israel had it all, but flesh always gets in the way. Israel had Abraham's faith and Isaac's stability and Jacob's desire. They had the brilliance of Joseph and the leadership of Moses. They had the strength of Joshua, but flesh always gets in the way. They were afforded spiritual governance. Listen now. Think. There is a great chasm between civil government and spiritual governance. And Israel is going to trade the voice of a mighty God for the rule of a lowly man. Flesh always gets in the way. The battle for the church and for our family We are going to face spiritual darkness and opposition. But the greater enemy is us. My sister tells my mother, Mom, Rosie, your slip is showing. And my mother gets a little embarrassed. Maybe not. And she fixes it. And that's an indication You're not exactly right yet. And maybe we should say to all of of us and each other, your flesh is showing. Would you get offended? Yes, you will. Because the more flesh you got, the more offense you'll take. Because when your flesh is showing, it messes up everything. You're not right. You got too much flesh showing. You don't even know you ought to be embarrassed, but you should be embarrassed because it's embarrassing the Lord and the kingdom. Oh my. It's a rough opening already. (laughs) The Lord brings us to this hope born out of 1 Samuel chapter 16. The profundity of their spiritual leader is unmatched and we find him in these opening lines and scenes. The task of describing Samuel may never be complete. Each time I read of him, the understanding grows deeper and deeper. The scripture will uncover the depths of God's provision and plan, especially through this powerful man named Samuel. Just know this. God is going to have a people. He will have a people. It could be us, maybe. But don't get arrogant enough to think that the whole kingdom rises and falls on us. Consider Samuel's entrance into the small town of Bethlehem. There is a reason why the elders trembled at his coming. 
Samuel is no ordinary man, and though there is a king in the land, no one comes close to the authority and the power of the prophet. And yet, he is much more than a prophet, which carries its own danger to minimize such a role. But Samuel was also the high priest. He was the judge. He was the national leader. God spoke with him, and he executed the judgments of a mighty God, a holy God among the people. By the time we read from 1 Samuel chapter 16, Israel is not doing so well. This experimental monarch has failed. The hope of a kingship has fallen into the abyss of pride because flesh makes a mess. I wonder how many great things, how many great and worthy fires, Holy Ghost fires have been extinguished because of pride. Samuel warned them not to have a king, but in their stubborn and obstinate fashion, they rebuffed his forecast. He will conscript your sons and daughters and take all that you have, the best. But the allure of self-government became their demise. God's rule, ladies and gentlemen, is always better. Are you getting this now? The voice is always better than the rule. But if if you don't listen to the voice, you'll be subject to the rule. If you put the matter into context, you will note that Samuel is fresh from mourning the loss of Israel's first king. No, Saul had not died yet, but the life of a backslidden king was a death all its own, and Samuel cried over God's final judgment. It even appears that a hopelessness has gripped the heart of this prophet. God had to tell him, fill thine horn with oil and go. The empty flask was the mirror of the nation. He's been there before when the Ark of the Covenant was stolen by the Philistines. This new devastation has hit him hard. Saul would remain the king, but his kingship was cut off long before he fell on his own sword. God is always paying attention, ladies and gentlemen. A person can be cut off long before there is evidence of the matter. You just don't know it yet. The elders in Bethlehem were not happy to see Samuel. In fact, They were unsure of his intention, so they asked him if he came in peace. This prophet, priest, judge could not be read very well. He did not walk according to their wishes. Having presided over an arkless nation for the duration of his lifetime and a failing monarch and the task of finding a new king, he was not in the mood to tolerate the trappings of a rebellious nation. Too much had been lost, and now he was privy to the severance of an arrogant throne. It was all so predictable flesh. God said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from the reigning over Israel? Gripping this man's heart, all the hope and love wrung out. Saul still wore the crown for years to come, but he was a hollow man. Samuel would never recover him, and in the end, Saul will lunge toward the prophet. He wanted to go back in time, but when he reached out... The king tore a small piece of the prophet's garment. And Samuel's final word was that in like manner the kingdom would be torn from him. The scripture bears it all out. The loss was personal to Samuel. He too had hoped for the best. He was vested in the moment. Even though he had warned Israel about following heathen nation, Samuel wanted Saul to succeed. It's the juncture where so many people have been. The promise has failed. And where do we go from here? The scripture won't hide it. The prophet is not in a pleasant mood. It causes the elders of Bethlehem to tremble. The Bible says they trembled. They asked, are you you here in peace? Are we in trouble? 
God sent Samuel to anoint a new king. Jesse's house was the destination. And one of his sons would fill that coming role. The prophet, however, has come under the cloak of a sacrifice. The guise is a perfect scenario juxtaposed against the ever so suspicious king of Israel. Samuel will consecrate Jesse and his seven sons, meaning that he will prepare them for the sacrifice. He's brought his own sacrifice. The Bible says a red heifer. It's not a simple task. Sacrifice the animal takes time. Preparing for that takes time. The fire and the altar have to be built. The utensils and the washing, the clothes, the changing. It was not a short routine. And then at the end of it all, Samuel will reveal the reason of his coming. He's come to anoint one of Jesse's sons. But the Bible doesn't tell us in 1 Samuel 16 that he spoke of a king. Perhaps it was assumed, but we do know that they all understood it was a special anointing by the most prestigious man in the land. Jesse, the father, presented Eliab, his firstborn son, a warrior no less, a leader among his brothers. Jesse presents the elements of flesh. As if God needed the firstborn to do his work. But Eliab looked right, and Samuel was convinced at the sight that this was the one to be anointed the king. Just so all of us know, God does not need our help. The people he uses are usually not the ones you think are qualified. That's flesh. When you look at someone and you think, boy, that'll make a great, this, that person's got it together. You don't have to have it together for God to use you. You just have to yearn for the Lord and be obedient to the hand of, and the voice of God. I hope you can get this in your spirit. This is the reason why seasoned saints have a tough time listening and learning to younger new converts. Because you think you know it all. And you're missing elements because you think they're not qualified. Jewish culture is going to make a demand on us. It's not always palatable to our American sensibilities. See, the eldest son was the one who retained the greatest of the inheritance. Not the daughters. Not the second son. Or the third, fourth, or fifth. The family name actually came through the first son. He was the decision maker for his brothers and sisters. He was positioned to be in control. The land or whatever properties that were to be passed down were managed by the first son. Much was riding on him. So it's no wonder why Samuel thought that Eliab was the obvious choice. The first was the fitting number in the Jewish mind. Now the culture is deep. The Jewish culture is deep. It's very different than ours. Mountains and valleys host memories of God's deliverance and of their moral failure. Rivers have meanings. Massive stones have been named as they mark passageways and so much more. The Hebrew people have kept the national and historical record. And while it is not always relatable to our modern thought, there are meanings in the scripture that speak of Jewish and Hebrew tradition and God's plan. The first is an obvious choice for Samuel because first sons belong to God. First of the harvest belongs to the Lord. In fact, a tithe was originally called first fruit. It's the first. Of course, I've said it many times. We think tithe is 10%. God thinks tithe is your first 10%. The first day of creation, God spoke something out of nothing 
The first was always profound. The image actually of that creation, that moment. The image bends even the most ambitious of creative minds. A form, a void, a swirling darkness, the voice calling out light, yet still undivided. He separates it. God establishes a distinction, and he called it, the Bible says, the first day. The first is what the Jewish fathers and mothers taught their children. First thing in the morning, when you wake up, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That's the first. Before you do anything, that's what you recite. Before you eat breakfast, before you put on your clothes, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our Lord, our God is one Lord. The first is the establishment of God. He is God alone. He said it of himself. Is there a God beside me? I know not any. The first speaks of recognition and distinction always and forever. So Samuel is standing there with the record of God's design and Eliab is looking like the coming king. And he thinks to himself, surely the king is standing before me. But God tells Samuel, don't let your eyes fool you. You're looking through the lens of your comprehension, and I'm looking at the heart. Okay. It's not the first. Maybe it's the second, and we love the second. Jesse called Abinadab, had him pass through Samuel. The second has significance. The second day of creation, God established the firmament. And that word comes from a verb which means to beat out and spread out. It was a canopy that covered the earth. Life could not exist without the canopy. It takes two. In order for life to exist, there must be a canopy. That's why all Jewish weddings occur under what they call a chupa or a hupe, which symbolizes a home, a canopy. Life is going to come from that place, the canopy. Two means growth and limitless possibilities. The New Testament church knew the second. They understood the second. The apostle preached it. Death rested with Adam. But Jesus was called the second Adam. And the second Adam was greater than the first Adam. Here's your Bible. So it is written. The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. But the last man, Adam, was made a quickening spirit. Here's what the Lord said in Hebrews chapter 10. God was not pleased with burnt offerings, but the law was required. And the Lord said, I have come to do your will and offer myself. Hebrews 10 and 9. He sets aside the first to establish the second. Esau was the eldest son, but the second son embraced the covenant. Esau sold it, but Jacob loved it. Second has a way of outlasting the first. Jacob was about to die, the Bible says, and Joseph hurried and brought his two young sons before him, Ephraim and Manasseh, so that Jacob could bless him. Put your hands on him, Dad. But when Jacob laid his hands on him, he switched his arms, and he put his right hand on Ephraim the second, and his left hand on the first son, Manasseh. And Joseph said, Father, Manasseh is my firstborn son. Your right hand should go there. Ephraim is my secondborn son. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But Jacob said, he refused. He said, I know it, my son. I know it. He also shall become a great people, and he'll be great. But truly, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. The possibility of the nations rested in the canopy of the second who could blame Samuel if he picked Abinadab? He was the second after all. But all that Samuel had, all that he presupposed about the second was in vain because God rejected Abinadab also. And I don't have time to go through all the numbers. But they have meaning and worth. All seven of Jesse's sons were presented before Samuel. To me, of course, the seventh one would be the one. 
Scripturally, seven is the number of completeness and perfection. God rested on the seventh day. It's a holy day. But at the end of all seven sons, Samuel's left empty. His flask is full now, but his options are empty. (laughs) So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? It seems almost in a reluctant retort that the father says, well, I got one more. He's the youngest, but he's not around. In fact, almost in a disparaging way, he says, but he is tending the sheep. <laughs> and it can only be known whether intentionally or, or spiritually ordained. The father says, Send for him. We won't sit down until he arrives. Because no one ever sits when the king comes. You have to wait till the king is seated before you're seated. Here's our church. This is my declaration to you. David is not one or two. He's not three. He's eight. He's not the first son with all that responsibility and all of that power. He holds no precedent over his brothers, no dominion, no dominance. He doesn't have the family structure order. He has no standing. In fact, he has no right to be there. He's number eight. He's not the second son, the combined covering, the image of the second. He's not a second chance. He's not the first or greater than the first. Three is seen as both a multiplication and a number of understanding. The Jews know this. We won't tell it all just to say that in all, David does not follow any precedent. The seventh son would have been nice. It fits so well in the confines of all things that are holy. The rest of them are all built on the first seven. The Jews know this. It was written long ago. It's baked into their culture. The postmodern church, we struggle with these elements of scripture and ordinances. Some people make up stuff that doesn't even exist in the Bible. Even still, Samuel stands there waiting for the eighth son. He went through one through seven. It doesn't follow the script. It's not in the purview of the Jewish thought. And Samuel has to wait on God. And look at David as he runs onto the scene of a well-rehearsed man. The smoldering sacrifice and the fine apparel of his brothers, they've all washed. David runs from the field. He's not washed. He's not washed ceremonially or otherwise. He's a shepherd. He wears the smell of the field and of the sheep. Samuel was not, has not sacrificed, has not sanctified him. He's not consecrated him. David doesn't look like a king. Nor does he appear worthy of it. Because he's number eight. And it doesn't fit in the perfect framework. It doesn't fit into creation. <laughs> but eight, ladies and gentlemen, is who we are. If you're new, let me just tell you. We're not one. We're not two. We're not three. We got no reference of four, five, or six. And we're certainly not perfect. I'm going to tell you what you are. You're a number eight. That's what we are. I got to declare this today. This is a declarative of who we are as a body. And if you don't understand it, you got to know where we came from to get to be number eight. <laughs> We're Pentecostal. Pentecostal is not one. It's not a two or a three. It's a number eight. Because mm-hmm. Pentecost comes seven weeks after the spring harvest. 
Pentecost happened on the eighth day of the seventh week. When the Bible says in Acts chapter 2 that when the day of Pentecost was fully come, it means the eighth day of the seventh week. It's the fiftieth day. That's who you are. Eight is who we are because God sets the precedent, not me or you. Eight is who we are because we came from nothing into something. When you had a baby boy, you did not circumcise him on the first day or the second day or the third, fourth, or fifth, but you waited to the eighth day. The covenant was established in the eighth day, but in the church, Romans chapter 2, verse 20 and 29, Paul called it the circumcision of the heart and in the spirit. And Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 reads like this, and whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried, here's how you're circumcised, buried with him in baptism, we're Pentecostal. Wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. That's the Holy Ghost who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. The circumcision is of water and the spirit. It's the baptism of the Holy Ghost and the name of Jesus applied in water. That's number eight. See, the image of this house, this specific house, is very different We don't have a right or a privilege to sit at any table. We have no likeness to the numerical value of the first seven. Perfection is not in our DNA. This is a place where we put our past under the blood. We don't just put our past. We put everyone else's past under the blood. You need to hear this from me today. Here's the culture of new life. We forgive. We start over. Sometimes we start over every Sunday. But we don't tolerate sinful practices and rebellion. But if you have a heart to start over, it don't matter what you smell like, doesn't matter what you wear, didn't matter what you drive, didn't matter what you drive, didn't matter where you came from. Because no one in this house is perfect. And if you're looking for perfection, you're in the wrong house. And if you think, uh oh, if you think you have it all together, (laughs) oh, I'll get to it. See, David is the emblem of a new beginning. It's another chance. It's a place where the first seven days are completed and there's really no hope. It's a place where whatever happened in the past is not considered in the present. David starts something brand new. He was not of royal heritage. He had to make his own. He was not educated in the halls of the palace, but the Lord was looking for the heart. Because if you have a heart for God, it won't matter what the field, what the field looked like where you came from. And I think you need to start over. Let me just tell you. Don't you know, here's the Bible, that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived. The fornicator is not going to go to heaven. Don't think that you can be involved in a sexual relationship and make it to heaven. You're not going. Idolatry is going to be kept out. Adulterers, let me tell you the difference of fornication and adultery. Fornication is when you have sex with someone who's not your spouse and you're not married. Adultery is when you have sex with someone and you are married or they are. 
Now, this used to be a staple in the church, but now no one wants to say these things because people get offended. Flesh always gets in the way. Things are going good. Things are going right. But you lost your brain. Mm-hmm. Nor effeminate. You know what the spirit's moving in this world? There's a feminine spirit in this world. It's a distortion against male and female. It's a distortion to confound and confuse. The effeminate spirit confuses and confounds. It distorts. It means it's a crossover between a man and a woman. But those people that are effeminate practice effeminacy. And they're not going to heaven. Now if you have a problem with this. Go back to the word and find out what the scripture says. I'm in the book. Please put it on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9. And this will help us. Thank you. Nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Nor thieves. Can't stand a thief. And all of you would be very irate if someone broke into your car today and stole money. Stole your phone. Stole your things. But when you don't return your tithes and offerings, you're a thief. That's what God said anyway. Don't wait. Don't worry about what God said. Let's just feel good here. Let's just feel good. Don't make anyone feel bad. I'm going to tell you, if you don't want to feel bad about yourself, stay away from this book. Stay away as far as you can. In fact, get one of those Bibles and have a little clasp and a lock and then throw the key away because this thing will challenge your flesh every day of the week. It's going to invade your space. It's going to mess you up. Nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Those people are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And in case you think that you're above that, Paul helped us out. And such were some of you. I'm going to just tell you where new life came from. We came from the streets. We came from the wrong side of the tracks. We came from misery. We had nothing. We didn't have anything, but God brought us in. We were low. We were down. We were crippled. We were hungry. We were destitute. We had no moral authority. We had no moral fortitude. We had nothing, but such were some of you, but now you are washed. Hey. Help me. If I'm looking at, help me, if I'm looking at this crowd, I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of people that have been hurt and wounded and destroyed, and some of us have been hurt by ourselves, some by other people, some by life, but the Lord has brought you in, and he has sanctified you, and he said, I don't care what you smell like, I don't care what you look like, I don't care where you come from, I'm going to qualify you. When you go down in the waters of baptism, you are sanctified, you are consecrated, and you're ready for the sacrifice. And somebody ought to shout out to God. Shout out to God.
And if you want a Holy Ghost revival, you got to know there's a lot of bad people in the world, and that's our field. That's our gold mine. There's a lot of people that don't feel qualified, and that's who we're going after. Let me tell you number eight. Are you ready for number eight? Oh, I love number eight. <laughs> First Peter 2.10. Which in time past... Don't tell me about growing up in church. You probably didn't grow up in church. You might have went to a building, but you are still a sinner far from God. Please don't tout your church attendance or your tenure. No. We have nothing. We came from nothing. We were not a people. But now we are the people of God. We've obtained mercy. That's how we got here. And if we looked at ourselves when we first came on the scene, we didn't smell right. We didn't look good. We could easily be passed over from, for somebody else. But the Lord looked at us and said, I like the heart. I can use the heart. You didn't have mercy. The only way you got access is because you had mercy. Now listen, we're not going to play games. If you want to play games, it's not the church to play games. Don't live carnal. If you're carnal... You're never going to connect. You're always going to struggle because you're carnal. If you don't know that you're carnal, if, if maybe not, go to the prayer room and ask God if you're carnal. Don't ask me. <laughs> you may not like my answer. Let's just start with a standard. Yes, you are. Yes. <laughs> if you ask me, yes, you're carnal. <laughs> If you have to ask, yes. <laughs> if you want to be carnal, then I'll tell you what you do. Come in, cruise in, don't be committed. Act like you're in church. Clap, sing, but don't get involved. And for certain, don't worship. Don't lose yourself because you might lose your pride. If you want to be carnal and, 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 and try to make sure everyone knows that you're, thinks, you, you want ever, people to think that you're spiritual, don't ever go to the prayer room. And when we get to prayer 300 in January, do not sign up for that. Kind of walk by. Hold a pencil. Kind of look it over. Just kind of, mm, I don't know if I'm going to pray that day or that day. Just walk back to your seat. Nobody will know. Act like you're prayerful. Like the Pharisees did. When they stood up and they said, I'm glad I'm not like that sinner. That's what's happened in all kinds of churches today. Because flesh always gets in the way. Because we're on the verge of a mighty revival. And the devil is fighting us and there's spiritual warfare. And it wasn't just a few months back or a little while ago... That Keisha and Carla are riding in the car past my home. And a figure walked in front of them and they screamed. And then that figure appeared right next to Carla's window. 
It was a demonic spirit. And when they told us the story this week, we identified that's the same spirit that met me at 4.15 in the morning behind my car on October 22nd. There's spiritual warfare going on. The devil has revealed himself. He's exposed himself because he's losing strength and he's weak. But that's not our problem. Our problem is us. We forgot we were number eight. We forgot that we were brought in by mercy. You got to remember you were saved by grace through faith and not not of yourselves. It was the gift of God that brought you here. And if you got any resident power or Holy Ghost, it's because God's been good to you. You ought to thank God because he's been good to you. Because you are not a people, but now you are a people. You had no hope and no inheritance, but now you got it all. You got the hope of revival and the kingdom. You had no name, but now you have a name. You had no heaven, but now you have a mansion. You had no hope, but now you have salvation. And please do not assume that you can keep this forever without guarding it. Because if you don't guard it in your weak moments, you're going to be like Esau. And you're going to sell your birthright for nothing. Let me tell you what soup is and what the stew represents. It represents offenses and jobs and careers and time. Anything that comes between you and the covenant. Ah. And you gave up the church for what? That's what you gave up the Holy Ghost for? You mean you, you gave it up for what? For a boat? For weekend trips? You gave up the wonder and the power of the Spirit because someone offended you? You mean you gave up heaven and you justified yourself because you wanted to be a little more worldly? Wait, because you said you didn't have enough money? You said you didn't have enough money? And you said, I don't know why they want my money. God doesn't need your money. You need to give God your funds and your money and your tithes and your offerings because it... uh, Because it's the ordinance of God. You mean you gave all that up because you let flesh get in the way? Oh, let me just be the pastor. You gave up church because your son and their daughter broke up? What? You can't go to church because your kids don't like their kids. You forgot. You forgot you had nothing. You forgot you smelled bad. You forgot you had diseases. You forgot you had addictions. You forgot that you didn't have anything, no righteousness, no comeliness. But the Lord brought you in. And the Lord said, I'll give you a little mercy. And the Lord said, I'll give you help. And the Lord said, I'll take you. I gotta preach today under the anointing of the Holy Ghost because I believe we got some place to go and it's not gonna be the devil and it's not gonna be the devil and it's not gonna be the devil and it's not gonna be hell it's gonna be us it's gonna be me and you am I too excited here I gotta calm down just bring it down level let me just tell you 
Mom and dad, I don't care how old those children are. You get them to the house of God. Rearrange your home. Rearrange your life and your lifestyle. Especially if they're older. Rearrange everything and you say nothing else matters but getting to the house of the Lord. Nothing. But it, it would be nice though if you didn't wait to come here to have the Bible and prayer and devotion. Because if you're waiting to come here, chances are they won't know what's going on because it's never been done at home. Here's the difference between the Gentile and the Jew. Here's the difference. The Jewish people already had this. So when they were filled with the Holy Ghost in Acts chapter 2, they already had the statutes. They already had the law. They already had the scripture. They already had the heritage. We were brought in. We had nothing. We got a lot of catching up to do. And it can't be caught up on Sunday. You're not going to get it on Sunday. You're going to get it on Monday and on Tuesday. And thank God we have some teaching on Wednesday. And this Wednesday, I'm going to be teaching and we're going to be taking communion. We ought to be here for communion on Wednesday. And if you're going to tell me, well, I'm just really busy. Well, why don't you tell the Lord you're busy? And when the trumpet sounds, you say, listen, I'd like to go, Lord, but I got some things to do. I'll catch you on the next bell. Is that... (laughs) Are we all right? It was good a moment ago until I start talking about our priorities and how out of whack our priorities are. Let me tell you, this world's not your home. Stop treating it like your home. Stop shining up the world. Stop waxing everything in the world. You ought to be preparing for a home beyond this place. Can I just read it again? Which in time past were not a people, but now the people, now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now you have mercy. I got to make a declarative here. It's a prophetic foretelling of this house. This place is a place of mercy and grace, and it should not be here. There's no logic, there's no human engineering that could have made this house what it is. You don't know where we've come from, you don't know where we've all been, but if you could just trust me on this, because I don't want to tell about it, many of the stories are unsavory. We ought not be in this room today, and you ought not be in this room today. And you got to remember where you've come from. How is it that many of the people who've been brought from horrible situations and have done terrible things, how is it that those are the most judgmental people? I want to know. I want to know why adulterous men and women who've been forgiven have a, such a hard time with criticism and judgment. You ought to remember where you've come from. You, you ought to be thankful you're number eight. You're not perfect and you weren't in the first seven. <laughs> Oh, I feel the Holy Ghost in this house now. I feel like preaching to everybody. I got to tell you, you were brought in by the mercy. You were brought in by love. You came in doing wrong, but the Lord made you right. You came in struggling, but the Lord lifted you up. You were weak and you were down, but the Lord gave you strength. You had no name, but the Lord gave you his name. You had no heritage, but the Lord brought you in. You are the grafted in vine. You're the branch. 
please stand with me now. I'm going to make a plug, and I feel embarrassed that I have to make a plug for Wednesday night Bible study, but I'm going to say it. Everybody ought to come to Wednesday night Bible study. Listen, I grew up in the church where we went to Wednesday night Bible study, and we had one day of the week where there's family prayer. We had Sunday morning and Sunday night. But Sunday morning wasn't just Sunday morning. We had Sunday school, and then we had Sunday morning worship, and then we had Sunday night, and Sunday night lasted for three or four hours. What changed? <laughs> Come on, number eight. What changed? Did you get better? Did you move up in the rank? You think you're number three now? Vying for second place? Are you in a race? I'm going to tell you what you really are. It don't matter what kind of clothes you're wearing today. What you really are, you're just a sinner saved by grace. That's all. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll tell you what the Lord did for you. He cleaned you up. And the process of holiness is sanctification. Because you never really get into the sacrifice or anointing until you become sanctified. So don't despise that. Just say, every day, I'm getting healed every day. Little thoughts in my brain are going away. Little things in my heart are going away. Oh, I feel the Holy Ghost in this house today. I got to make a declarative for all the people. People are going to come into this house and not only are we not going to judge them harshly, we're going to show them how beauty, how beautiful it is to live a holy lifestyle. We're going to show them how wonderful it is that the Holy Ghost is inside of us and we're going to tell them of our testimony where the Lord brought us from. and shout and rejoice because you've been brought in. Shatayama Sandaraba Shatayama Hey! You ought to be thanking God because he's a good God and he saved you and he brought you and he helped you and he restored you. Woo! for all the people that were messed up just messed up but the Lord changed your life but you would just step forward and say I was messed up all the former alcoholics and drug users all the former three thieves and covetous all the people that had nothing but anger. I'm calling for all the people that have been so wounded and hurt and rejected. I'm calling for everybody that would openly confess 
that without the Lord and the church, the cross and the blood, I would be nowhere and have nothing. But because of the goodness of God and because of the provisions of the Lord, my life has been changed. I'm still working on it, but my life has been changed. And I want us to look around at one another and say, this is the operation of this house. Uh, uh, uh. Now with your hearts, just begin to worship him. Come on, we're here to worship him now. The goodness of our God the righteousness of our Savior, the impartation of the Holy Spirit. Wherever you are, lift up your heart to God. Lift up your heart to God. Come on, thank Him now. Confess that you're nothing without Him. Yes, 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 yes. That's right. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it.